Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody, to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is the 6th of November, 2015. Uh, I am your guest host, uh, Doug. Uh, Joining me in our studio, virtual studio from all across the planet, are Tiffany, Erica, and Gabby. And today we also have a special guest with us today, Irene. So uh, today we're going to be... Oh, hello, everybody. (laughs) Hi. Hello. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about, a little bit unusual for the health and wellness show, we're going to be talking about death. But we see death as being a natural part of life and therefore something that uh, should be talked about in the context of health and wellness. So um, just reading from the show description here, uh, death is everywhere, yet no one talks about it. Violent video games, constant death in the news, fear of disease and dying. Why are we so afraid of talking about death openly? Uh, today on SOT Talk Radio Health and Wellness Show, we look into the subject of death. What are the top five regrets of the dying? How about reincarnation and near-death experiences? What about the physical processes of dying? So we're going to be exploring that and uh, more, and hopefully the conversation is going to lead us into some interesting areas. I'm sure it will. Um, so I think to start off with, we'll talk a little bit about kind of the physical processes of dying and you know how we actually die. And I know that uh, Tiffany has some information on that and some uh, personal experience on it. Uh, so, Tiff, did you want to share some with us? Yes, yes, I've died several times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I worded that poorly. <laughs> no, I don't have any personal experience or near-death experience or anything like that, but I was a hospice nurse for a period of time. Um I thought it was going to be much worse than it was, but it really wasn't that bad. I thought it was going to be kind of macabre and weird, but um, it wasn't that awful. I really enjoyed the time that I spent with my patients before they passed away. Um, I'll just get into some of the physical signs of dying. Um, I visited patients in their homes and in nursing homes and in assisted living facilities. Um, They have, you know, various different types of cancers. A lot of them had Alzheimer's disease and things like that. Um, But one thing that, um, well, there are several things that come about when you're dying, Um, not in any particular order, but um, people who are dying, of course, they're going to lose their appetite. They'll refuse meals. They'll only eat, like, small amounts of food, Um, just little bites here and there. Um, They don't want to drink much, and it's really not a good idea to force people to eat. Families will be really worried that they're, you know, they're not eating, they're not taking in any any fuel or anything, but, you know, they're dying down, their metabolism is slowing down, so it only makes sense that they're not going to eat that much. Um, another thing is that they're very, very tired at certain points in the process. Like maybe when I first go and visit somebody, they'll be up, maybe walk around a little bit, sitting up in a chair. But eventually all of them, you know, take to their beds. Um, we'll have to order like hospital beds for them and it's in the living room most of the time. And they'll mm-hmm. just be in the bed and they'll just sleep 
sleep the majority of the time. Sometimes they're very, very difficult to wake up. Um, they're physically weak. They lose a lot of muscle tone, depending on what disease that they have, like cancer. They'll become cachectic. Um, they'll lose, uh, you know, their muscle tone is just not there. They look really, really bad, like they're near death. I don't know any other way to explain it. Um, one of the most interesting parts about it, um, some people get confused or disorientated. Um Sometimes with the Alzheimer's patients, it's hard to tell because a lot of times they're not talking anyway. But the people who are still communicating, they'll sometimes say that they uh, saw their mother or saw some other relatives that have passed away. Um, they'll have conversations with them. Um, they might see things in the room that other people can't see. Um, my grandmother, she actually had hospice at home at my mother's house, and she was seeing some things. We have, I have an aunt that's not wrapped too tight, and she said that she saw a demon in my aunt. So just like um, mm -hmm. the thinning of the veil, I guess you could call it, where the, the boundaries uh, between this world and the next world is kind of blurred and transient maybe. Mm -hmm. Um Right when have, death is approaching. I have, um, I have one question. Have question? Yeah. Um, do these people wear like on high opioid drugs, or oh, do yeah. they just? Okay. Yeah, hospice is kind of like a hotbed for you know painkillers. Um, if like some, not everybody wanted to be on a bunch of painkillers. Um, But if they were, you know, they would be more out of it, less communicative. But the ones who, you know, didn't really want to go that route very much, they were much more alert when they were dying. Um, and, again, with the loss of appetite, you know, people eventually would lose the ability to swallow pills. So there's liquid morphine that you can put under their tongue just to help them with the pain, and it also helps them with breathing, like say if they have end-stage COPD. The morphine can help with breathing, but most of the worries that people had was that they would die in a lot of pain. So hospice makes mm -hmm. a really big point to make sure that people have pain medications. Um, well, that's a really interesting point. I wonder, like, if that actually, you know, I, I, we can only assume that there's kind of a natural process to dying. And, you know, because some of the articles that we looked at for the show uh, talked about this. Um, one of them in particular was uh, called What Dreams May Come, End-of-Life Dreams mm -hmm. May Be Comforting. And I wonder if the drugs actually interfere kind of in some way with that natural process. I mean, obviously, you don't want people to be in a lot of pain. So it's kind of yeah. like... Yeah, you don't you don't kind of don't want to uh, to make them kind of suffer. But at the same time, I wonder if uh, these drugs kind of interfere in some way and stop kind of some of the natural um, processes, like having these dreams that kind of uh, you know it's kind of like almost a life review in some ways, and uh, mm -hmm. what the article was stating. So yeah, that's mm -hmm. something to think about. Yeah, I think it definitely yeah. does. Um, in the time that I was a hospice nurse, I don't think I've one person that died I mean eventually they do because they can't swallow anything and then you know they start the active physical 
like we call it actively dying where they just mm-hmm. can't take anything in at that point, but they're not really speaking or they're, they pretty much lose consciousness. Um, mm-hmm. But I've never seen anybody actually die a natural death unassisted by any kind of medications or anything like that. I've mm-hmm. actually only seen one person die like right before my eyes. Mm-hmm. All the other times you kind of show up like you're there when they're dying, but then you get a call and they have already died, so you go to the house. But um, you'll mm-hmm. notice that they'll have like really labored breathing, like they'll breathe mm-hmm. fast and it's irregular. And then they'll have periods where they stop breathing. This is called chain stokes breathing. And then mm-hmm. sometimes they'll have these oral secretions that kind of get trapped in their throats, and that's what's called the death rattle because it makes that noise when they breathe in and out. Uh, um, their bodily functions kind of slow down, like they won't put out as much urine. They'll stop defecating. Um, this is kind of linked to their organs shutting down and also because they're not eating or drinking anything. Mm-hmm. Um, some people mm-hmm. you'll notice that um, they'll get swelling in their feet and ankles. Um, there's a thing called modeling, M-O-T-T-L-I-N-G, where the blood will pool on their lower extremities. You'll see it a lot on people's feet or if they're lying in bed, they'll be on like their underside. It's like uh, kind of like blood pooling. I don't know how really to describe it, but like their veins become engorged because their circulation is not really working that well. Mm. And some people will get, like, really cool. Um, there was one guy that went out to his house. He was just cold. And the first time that happened to me, I was never able to get anybody's pulse. I couldn't get his pulse. I couldn't get his blood pressure. But I could listen to his heart with my stethoscope and see that it was still beating. He was awake and talking to me. It was the mm-hmm. oddest thing. So, Did he complain of being cold, or was he just cold to the touch? Oh, yeah. He was cold to the touch, and he complained of being cold. He was, like, wrapped in blankets. But um, most people that I've talked to, some of them say that they're okay with it. Some of them you can tell they're, like, in distress about it. But the most important thing for them was to be able to die at home in their familiar surroundings, be around their family, be in their own bed, be you know, in the place that's familiar to them. So that was the most important thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those are just some of the, the physical things. Um, and then, like, when the patient died, we'd go out to the house, or I'd go out to the house and uh, clean up the body, uh, put on, like, a diaper, kind of put fresh clothes on them and call the funeral home, and the funeral home will come out. I'd have to pronounce uh, the time of death, even if it wasn't exact, because usually they died before I got there, so it would just be the time that I got there. But, um, yeah, the one time that the person died when I was right there, um, it was a little gross, I have to say, just his mm-hmm. physical, uh, the physical process that he went through right when he died. I won't go into the details, but, yeah. Huh. It was it was bad, <laughs> but he was at home. That's where he wanted to be. His family was around. It was like a house full of people. So, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, that sounds very natural. From what 
from what you said, it's uh, it was interesting to me, like uh, how the people before they die they sleep so much. It reminds mm-hmm. me like of um, of uh, infants when we're born, we spend so much yeah. time sleeping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. thought of the same thing. It's like maybe it's yeah. the kind of phase you go through, like either right after you're born and right before you die, kind of I don't know, a waiting room. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because you said uh, something earlier, Tiff, about kind of like the thinning of the veil. It's almost like, uh, you know, it, it seems like in dreams um, or in sleep, there's kind of that thinning of the veil and you kind of are inhabiting, your consciousness is kind of inhabiting this kind of transition the area between kind of uh, regular waking life and uh, and and whatever lies after death, and it might be that you know as infants are kind of coming into this world, they're sort of still inhabiting kind of that two uh, two worlds at the same time, and then as we're dying, we kind of again go into that kind of transition area. I don't know, just mm-hmm. speculation there. Yeah, it is interesting that you say that. Also, people who have re- uh, who have done past life therapy or reintegration or whatever is recalled, they also report needing a lot of sleep after the therapy, after mm-hmm. a particular session, which was part- uh, difficult. Like they require a lot of sleep. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting that you talk about reincarnation, actually, uh, Gabby. I mean, maybe maybe we can get into that a little bit. Um, it seems like the kind of the mainstream perspective on stuff is that this is impossible, that it doesn't actually exist. Um, you know, there's no way that one consciousness, because consciousness is completely dependent on a brain. You know, the idea that um, consciousness is a product of physical reality, you know, physical brain. The brain creates consciousness. Therefore, it's not possible to transfer consciousness from one brain to another brain. And all these incidences you uh, you hear about where um, often children kind of have these past life memories that can't really be explained by any other means than they are kind of somehow getting these memories of, of people who have lived before them uh, in some way. Um, they can't, you know, they, these, these things kind of get brushed aside by the mainstream, like, oh, the kids are making it up, they want attention, there's... You know, they, they were cued by the parents or by friends of the family or something like that. But uh, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? What, uh, where, do you, where do you stand on reincarnation? Well, there is a very interesting story, uh, very interesting research by Dr. Dean Tucker, who wrote mm. a book called Return to Life, Extraordinary Cases of Children Who Remember Past mm. Life. And uh, he found not only one, two, but several children. And from his study, he says the following data, like roughly 70% of the children say they died violent or unexpected deaths in their previous life. These are children who recall past lives. Males account for close to three quarters of those deaths. Um, more cases are reported in countries where reincarnation is part of the religious culture, but the psychiatrist says there is no correlation between how strong a case is deemed and that family believes in reincarnation. Yeah. One out of five children who report a past life say they recall the intermission, like the time between death and birth. Mm. And um, cases where a child's story has been traced to another individual 
the median time between death of that person in childbirth was about 60 months. And mm -hmm. further research by these psychiatrists, psychiatrists and others show that um, you know, children generally have above average IQs and they possess any mental or emotional disorders beyond average. Nearly 20% children had scar-like birthmarks with an unusual deformity that closely matched marks or injuries the person whose life the child recalls received at or near his or her death. And um, yes, those basically are the very interesting data that he has that he collected from all these children that he studied. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting, you know, it it it, it kind of um it, his I uh, reading his uh, his interview uh, transcript of his interview here. Um it, it, he he tells a story of uh of one uh child who had these past life uh uh his name, I think this, the kid's name was James and he was the son of a Christian couple in Louisiana. So I mean, in, in, within Christianity, there's no um, talk of reincarnation, and generally, it's 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 rejected as you know something of a, a heathen religion or something like that. So so there's no way that he was mm -hmm. cued by his parents that that he should be having uh, this kind of experience. Mm -hmm. From um, what I've read, it seemed like the children that do have these. Um, Memories of having lived previously, usually by like the time they're ages five to seven, they kind of forget. Mm. And that, yeah. that seemed interesting to me. Um, yeah. But there was another article, um, children who have near-death experiences then lead charmed lives. So there was a study with uh, about 30 kids who had near-death experiences um, uh, it said that they were better at schoolwork, they were more mentally stable, had more empathy for other people, and not one of these kids had become addicted to drugs or alcohol. Um, yeah. That they're also more likely to have long-lasting relationships when they're older. Interesting. Yeah, it's almost like... Uh... I was Go going ahead. to say the statement, following the line of before, that it speaks of past life therapy when people recall the symbology or the, whatever past life, they become more stabilized as well, emotionally mm -hmm. speaking. It's almost like it gives like a perspective on things, you know? Mm -hmm. Like if you've had a near-death experience and you kind of have seen what's on the other side, like whether you want to attribute that just to um, brain chemicals or energy surges in the brain at the time of death or whatever that might be. It, it's like it gives kind of this grand perspective on things. And it, it's kind of like, well, I, I mean, it kind of almost discounts the idea that it is just a material um, explanation for it. And, uh, you know, they get they get an impression of like kind of the overall macroscopic picture of things like that's your life. You know, the little little things in your life don't actually um, add up to much, you know, there's a, a bigger perspective on things, you know, like things like mm -hmm. career or um, money or whatever might motivate people normally who don't kind of have that perspective. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these people kind of have this grander perspective and see what's actually important and, you know, what in your life, uh, you know, what maybe even to a certain degree, why you're here. Um, you know, what, what you're here to do because I don't think you're here to clock as many hours as you possibly can at your job or, you know, rise mm -hmm. up in the pay, in the pay ranks or, you know, 
uh, get a get a great wife and a white picket fence and all that kind of stuff. You know, it, it maybe puts things into a better kind of grander perspective. And if you think about it, these realizations require very high cognitive functions. And uh, I don't know if there is research on that, um, brain scans or whatever uh, related to near-death experiences, but recalling these experiences or going through them doesn't speak of having, you know, of using higher cognitive functions, you know, consciousness. Mm-hmm. I think I've read that uh, the brain is kind of like dead when this is going on. So it's like, uh, I don't remember who it was, but one scientist, one doctor was saying that it seemed like mind was separated from the brain. Mm. So somebody was able to have these experiences, see, hear, and experience like in way more vivid ways than we do in everyday life, all these uh, things they went through. Uh, but their brain was clinically dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which right there kind yeah, of so like... The so brain ahead, is just an interface for <laughs> true consciousness that kind of is outside of your brain. and Yeah, and yeah. I don't think that that's yeah. really that controversial. I mean, it is controversial among materialists, people who think that, that you know, the only the only reality is material reality. But um, you know, in quantum physics and and all these other kinds of areas, it's it's kind of almost accepted at this point that uh, matter is actually a product of consciousness and not the other way around. So it, it to me, it makes total sense that you know, really, the brain is just kind of a receiving apparatus, and it's where kind of consciousness is seated, um, and then you know, consciousness kind of experiences a life through the body, and then when the body is done, it uh, it continues on and. It, it does make perfect sense to me that then it would, you know, in order to keep on growing and learning its lessons, that it would then uh, incarnate in another body um, to keep mm-hmm. on uh, having those experiences. And, yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, it, it seems, it, it doesn't seem controversial at all. But maybe that's because I'm completely not a materialist in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> so. Yeah. And maybe it has even, to do also yeah. with... Um, what you believe and how you believe it, like the materialists and the people who are more into spiritual beliefs, if I may call them that, mm-hmm. maybe it has to do with, with a, uh, that's controversial what I'm going to say, but maybe it has to do with soul developmental stage, like maybe mm-hmm. some are like new souls, so for them it's more everything is more material and that's how they see their world and how they perceive it. And it might be the people, because so many people have um, clinical deaths and they come back, but they don't have any near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. So it might have something to do with this. Just yeah. throwing well, it out there. Well, bad news for the materialists because there are very well-documented cases and one particular case um, is uh, explaining the book The Scalpel and the Soul, which is written by a neurosurgeon. And there is, it was a woman who had a brain aneurysm, which required uh, surgery. And for that particular surgery, they're placed on clinical death for 20 minutes at the most. And everything is very well documented. Electrical activity of the brain, that are recordings of the surgery, everything. And um, 
there was a conversation during the surgery which the patient recalled very well. Well, she was clearly mm-hmm. dead, you know, the brain basically showed zero trace of activity. There was nothing going on on her brain. And she mm-hmm. still recalled the conversation and to be demonstrated by the recording of the video of the surgery. So this is something that a materialist will not be happy to explain because there is no explanation. <laughs> yeah, I saw yeah. a video on YouTube about this doctor who got into studying near-death experiences and in his operating room, he would take these pictures and post them high up, like on top of cabinets or on top of like lighting fixtures or something, and see if patients, when they came back after their surgeries or their near-death experience, could tell them the pictures that he put up really, really high that nobody who wasn't on the ceiling could see. And they could. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's not really very explainable. No. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's all, it's all very interesting. Like all those kinds of uh, different, um, and there's been a lot of them where people have kind of reported, you know, floating above their body. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they're in an operating room or something, they can recall conversations that were had. They can recall people who were there who they hadn't seen before or after um, while they were conscious. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, those, those kinds of things, you, you know, you see the material that's kind of struggling like really struggling to explain these things uh, via a material um, explanation. And they kind of end up doing all these mental gymnastics just to be able to, 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 to explain these things. So I, I don't know. I mean, to me, it just seems like, you know, you have to go with Occam's razor there. The most simple explanation has to be the right one. And if somebody is aware of something that's going on around them while they're clinically dead, clearly their consciousness is uh, still active when their body is not. So, yeah. And then there's a report of uh, people who saw relatives and loved ones who have passed without even mm-hmm. knowing that they have died. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those are those stories are also kind of like uh, corroborative that there is some awareness after death or something. Yeah, there was that story where the the guy had a near-death experience and he said he was in some place and his, I think it was his mother and his aunt and his sister was there. And he was shocked that his sister was there and he was questioning, like, why was she there? And it turns out that while he was dying, his family didn't want to put any more stress on him, but his sister had died like a week before then. Oh, no. He he didn't know it. Yeah. Jeez, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it also well, there was a, a lot this 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 ego thing that we have, you know, that, that you guys were talking about the materialist and being attached to the physical reality, and then all these t- type of experiences kind of put all that into question. It can't mm-hmm. be answered. And, you know, like the thinning of the veil, as you mentioned, this idea where you know things just aren't as they appear to be, but very strange occurrences can happen, and they're unexplainable. To, to even the ego or the, the concept of, of you know, the soul not being a physical part of the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, there was an interesting uh, book um, written by, I believe it was written by William Baldwin, if I'm not mistaken, um, and it was called 30 Years Among the Dead. Now, this is, this is going to get into some wacky territory here, so, uh, you know, everybody, you know, 
take it take it with a grain of salt. But basically, this guy worked with his wife um, for years on um, people who had uh, spirit attachments. So this idea of a spirit attachment is that once uh, somebody dies, um, rather than the spirit kind of moving on, um, like the soul kind of moving on to to the the, the next level, whatever that might be, um, something keeps them here. Um, something you know they 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 can't deal with something or they haven't learned a particular lesson or something and they end up sticking around. Um, so he had a method for kind of uh, releasing these spirits and they would enter into his wife, um, and then they would have conversations with the with the the spirit through his wife channeling these uh, these entities. And um, it was really interesting because you know reading these things it always seemed like these. Uh, these spirits kind of, they had some kind of like mental block or something like that. These, these kind of obsessions or they didn't know they were dead in a lot of cases and they didn't really understand what was happening to them. And they had some sort of fear or some kind of block that was keeping them from kind of moving on. So it's, I, I thought it was really interesting, you know, this idea that, you know, from this, I kind of took out of it that you almost have to prepare for death or if you have certain beliefs um, in, in certain things, they can kind of prevent you from actually, you know, making that transition to actually moving on. And it's like this kind of like um, obsessive need to kind of stick around, like whether it be like an obsession with a person, you want to, uh, you know, apologize for something or you want to, um, you know, get revenge on somebody or something like that. It's like these things kind of can hold you, hold you there. Um, I don't know, you know, maybe I'm going off in left field here, but that's that's kind of uh, what I took from that. No, that well, was something interesting that you mentioned about the the fear. Like, where does this fear come from? Why are people so afraid of dying? And you can't just blame it on horror movies because people were afraid to die even before all that. Yeah. So I think religion plays a big part in it. Like, um, people fear hellfire and damnation. Like, they're going to be judged. They're going to be punished. They're going to burn in hell forever. And that's like... Mm really sad to have like if you're on your deathbed i mean who would want to be thinking about something like that there's I mean, you wouldn't be surprised that they have a, a a traumatic or a scary death they're frightened mm-hmm. that they're gonna go to hell yeah and it's forever yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. it seems that uh also uh well, some of the cases that I read about, it seems that people who died of overdose are also kind of like tend to stick around are some mm. because they're so confused and unaware of uh, what happened to them. They don't realize they are dead. Mm. Uh, also, people who uh, commit suicide sometimes because mm. they're already to get to the place where they're decide to take their life, they're already uh, in much uh, emotional pain. Mm. Yeah, and it, I think the religion thing doesn't really help on that front either, because I know in, in Christianity, it's uh, if you commit suicide, you're going to hell for sure. So I think somebody who's kind of reached some place where they just have to end it for themselves, even if they're not necessarily a religious person, I mean, that, that thought, there's got to be in their consciousness somewhere, this idea that they have... Um, committed this grave sin. Um, so I, I can see how that would kind of make them, you know, very fearful and not wanting to move on and, and facing whatever came next. You know, it's like they couldn't face what was in their own life, but they can't really face what comes next either. So I, I can see that that would be 
um, you know, something really detrimental to to kind of just having a natural and uh, easy process to to dying. And some people are just really afraid that it'll be painful, like the most painful thing they'll ever go through. They're afraid of the pain. There's mm-hmm. literally a lot what I heard, so they they did take pain medications, pain medications. But I think mm-hmm. a lot of that is just emotional pain that they're trying to prevent. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're just really, um, I wouldn't say addicted, but just attached to life, attached mm-hmm. to having a physical body for some reason. I mean, I could see how they would. They spent their whole life in the physical body, and that change would be difficult for them. But maybe... They just really love being on 3D Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't want to leave. Or that they realize that they can't take all these things with them, like you mentioned earlier, Doug, this idea of working and, you know, you have all these attachments or these possessions and, mm-hmm. you know, it's like that letting go of that releasing. Is, is There's a big fear of that, you know, regret, shame. Mm-hmm. It's just... Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, I think that that's a really good point too. And I think you know when it when it comes to this, we kind of been talking about this sort of process of dying and people at the end of their lives. You know, they uh, they'll they'll have kind of these dreams uh, about people from their past or or start thinking about past incidences and things that uh, you know maybe some regrets and kind of coming to terms with a lot of things. And I think that this this is probably a, a big part of the dying process that you kind of do have this sort of life review going on and thinking about things, thinking about these regrets, you know, reliving certain experiences and things. And and I think that if if we interfere with this process in any way through like drugging somebody or you know even to a certain extent when people want to talk about things and they they try talking to maybe the wrong person who's like oh don't worry about it or oh don't think about that and all this kind of stuff. Um, I, I think that maybe you know by interfering with these things or, or or subverting them altogether, you're actually interfering with a very natural process, and that might actually um, you know interfere with a person's ability to move on and make you know lead to them kind of sticking around because they haven't come to terms with these kinds of things. They haven't they haven't kind of learned the lessons that they needed to learn from these experiences. I wonder also if this like fear of dying is. Uh a product of our modern way of living. Mm. Uh, And it wasn't around so much in the past when people lived in nature and they saw how everything in nature is like there's birth and then there's death and they were part of this cycle. Mm. And uh, I remember, I think it was in one of uh, Kubler-Ross books, uh, there was a priest who worked in Alaska and he saw how the Indian population of Alaska, the, the elder people knew when their death was approaching. And they would gather all the family together. They would talk, share memories, sing, dance, um, have like a one uh, final party with the loved ones before the grand mm-hmm. departure. And the whole community yeah. and family shared in this moment and provided support, and they were not scared of dying. 
even uh, I come from Cyprus and I grew up in a village and it wasn't uncommon to hear people say like, oh, so-and-so is 95 years old and he's still active and stuff, though he smokes and drinks and all that. And uh, I will hear stories of grandfathers, like people my age will tell me about their grandfathers, how uh, or grandmas, they they knew when their time was coming and they will call mm. the children who live now in other cities to come to see them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And maybe that should, be, that should come natural to us, but people are so out of touch, like with such a natural process that, they just, you know, they get numbed down, drowned off, and they just don't see it coming, so to speak. It is interesting yeah. what you say because at least uh, from my heart surgery rotations, it's a specialty with um, high risk of death, so to speak, on an emergency basis or from even on an elective surgery. And I remember people, um, people who died shortly afterwards, who had a very peaceful look in their eyes. It was like almost like light shining through them. And it was remarkable. Mm-hmm. I would be like on my daily routine and then just look at them and I would be like completely like startled, like, you know, like, oh, goodbye or, you know, it's like, it was different. And shortly afterwards, um, they died. So I wondered, I always wondered if they already knew about it, even though it was sudden, not expected, but if they already knew. You know, how well, soon before the uh, before they died did you actually see that peaceful look on their face? Yes, uh, one particular man. It was like I saw him. He was smiling. He was he has like this bright light, you know, through his eyes. That's how I would describe it. It's, it's, it's difficult to explain. And within one minute, I left the room, mm. proceeded to the next uh, room, uh, um, room. And then um, the nurse came in and she called and uh, he just fell down and he basically died from, it was his aorta, the the big vessel, which he tasted with instant sudden death. Well, a lot of people, like if they're a little bit disoriented in the process of dying, sometimes they'll get this moment of clarity they'll start communicating with people again and like call their family in and talk to people and then after that they might die um a lot of people seem like um if their family members live far away like this one man you know he was kind of distressed he wanted to see his son and he seemed like he waited until his son showed up and then he kind of gave himself permission to die after that mm-hmm. yeah it seems like we have a, a, an instinctual awareness of when our time comes. Probably we all do, but it's just like mm-hmm. um, Doug was saying, sometimes it gets uh, uh, buried, this instinct, mm-hmm. so we don't feel it by all these uh, maybe false beliefs or maybe by being drugged or... Um, mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's, uh, kind of what we're surrounded by, too, as far as, like, uh, the view of death in our culture. You know, death is kind of like this ultimate consequence and something you're trying to avoid at all costs, you know. And constantly, Mm -hmm. you know, like we were saying in the intro, like, uh, violent video games and 
all this death and destruction on the news all the time and was kind of surrounded by this this very negative picture of death and how, you know, mm-hmm. you, you want to avoid it. And it's kind of used as a motivating factor and all these kinds of things to promote fear. Um, you know, fear of death is so prevalent and so encouraged um, that I think, you know, that it becomes very easy to bury this kind of view of death as a, as a natural process. Like, what, like, like mm-hmm. as the title of our show says, none of us are getting out alive. You know, so <laughs> it just seems a complete avoidance of kind of coming to terms with that. Especially if you're in a hospital and they're uh, trying all these heroic efforts to keep you alive. You're like yeah. on a breathing machine. You got all these tubes and wires and whatnot sticking out of you. And, you know, people just don't want to let go. Or doctors who don't want to just say, okay, there's nothing more that we can do for you. Um, yeah. They see it as a failure and they won't send people home or they won't call in the hospice and say, you know, there's nothing else we can do. That would kind of be like admitting defeat, like death is something that, you know, they need to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. And when there's actually the people that really like, you know, actually even prefer to die at home, you know, in their bed, as you said in the beginning. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, yeah. as you know, so like the other side of the coin, like very young people who never had any disease mm-hmm. and came into the emergency room with a very weird allergic reaction, which didn't respond to standard allergic treatment with mm-hmm. adrenaline, with corticoids, well, and uh, it, it was pretty shocking, you know, for everybody because he was talking to his son like 30 seconds before the incident. And suddenly, you know, started to die, literally, like, despite the treatment, despite resuscitation. And it just mm-hmm. left everyone with this, like, heightened awareness of, wow, to die, you literally don't have to be alive, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it even comes into the whole uh, debate on the assisted suicide thing, you know, where, uh, you know, a person who is in some kind of chronic state and um, is really just suffering. You know, and there's this this kind of humanitarian sort of movement that yes, we should we should have this kind of assisted suicide thing where where it's mm-hmm. like you know what this person is just suffering. There's no point in making them endure this any longer. But it's so controversial, and some people are so against this idea. Like no, 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 we have to we we can't help you know we can't um, kind of assist in this natural process. We have to prevent it at all costs, even if the person is suffering greatly. And, uh, you know, even, even the idea that you have to sign a do not resuscitate order, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, you have to tell people, no, you know, stop trying to save the life. Like, you know, if, if the body is giving up, then the body is giving up. It's time to, time to move on. So, yeah, just the, the, the whole culture seems to be geared towards this idea that we need to um, avoid death at all costs. Well, a lot of times a patient will say, I don't want to be resuscitated. And then with their family, it's a different story. Like if mm. the person, say, loses consciousness and their family is there and they want the doctors to do whatever they can to kind of bring this person back, even if they do have a do not resuscitate order, the doctor's mm. going to listen to their family that's in the room mm. with them at the time. Yeah. Well, so much of it is just trying to avoid lawsuits too. Yeah, yeah. Well, and speaking about the whole cultural belief, um, you know, this idea that it's to be feared and it's morbid and ugly and let's just put them away in a hospital or a nursing home and not really face it, 
you know, um, as Irini was sharing, like culturally in the past, it wasn't feared the way that it is now. It wasn't looked at as this scary, you know, end of life. Um, there's been lots of myths and stories about it. And uh, Dr. Clarissa Piccola Estes has done an excellent audio book that I recommend for anyone who wants to look more into it. It's called The Radiant Coat, The Crossing uh, Between Life and Death. And she talks about how stories throughout cultures um, that are old but young, ancient but also new, are um, show the harmonious relationship between death and the living and that death is actually like an old nurse who comes into the world with us on the day we're born it's our relative our companion our midwife into the next world and we prepare all our lives for this we have the this death close to us since the time we're in the womb and then uh, birthing into the next world. So it's not so much a threat as it is a protector. And she talks about all the different symbols of death, like the tinker at the crossroads or the archetype, you know, the skeleton. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not meant to be feared so much. It's just a reminder that death always sits next to you. Mm-hmm. And um, she talks a lot about, again, this cultural belief and, and how we carry this fear, but if we kind of change our perspective about it and we see death as a protector, and she talks about how you can almost see it in the corner of your eye, especially as people get older and they start to have this disattachment from the materialistic aspects of their life. Mm -hmm. um, In fairy tales, you know, it's the renewer, the continuer, the creator. The most primitive people believe that the concepts... um, represent themselves in dream life. So as you guys were talking about these dreams that people have that to take them into the world and um, how to awaken to death, she talks about like uh, in Latin culture, the Virgin Guadalupe, la mujer de la noche, she's, you know, the midnight woman. She comes to the bed of the dying and teaches them how to die, how to enter death with eyes wide open and to truly live in one's dying. How how um, does one make a concession with death? And then she gives four kind of interesting points that um, with each point she has a story that goes along with it, and I'm not going to go into the story so mm-hmm. much. But she says uh, the first is a clear memory, um, where you came from and who you really are, your true self, not your materialistic self, not your ego self, but your true soul self. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next is the um, clear power. And, and she talks here about how cultures here, like Irini was talking about in cultures, how you know people have ceremonies like Day of the Dead uh, mm-hmm. that was just on November 1st. You know, this relationship with, with your culture and your ancestors and the people of your past and um, how they give you power to die in your own way. It's actually a healing or a restoring of of the soul to its original home. Mm -hmm. And then third is the clear scene. So worldly attachments to people and things, it's the illusion that we're attached to and people need to go through that process of letting go Mm -hmm. of those attachments to this world. And then the final one was clear knowing, developing your intuition 
uh, leave-taking of this world. And she tells us archetypes teach us about our follies, things we choose, you know, time and time again. And we don't choose death, death chooses us. Mm. She talked about uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's done extensive studying and working with dying people, you know, the stages of death, the anger, the denial, the grieving, the bargaining, and the regrets, and then the processing. She just talks about ego grieving, how we ally ourselves in the last day with, you know, our eyes wide open, seeing that the ego wants to take control, when in reality it's time to let the soul do its work. So in the West we try and trick death. You know, just like you guys were talking about with the doctors saving and um, and as Doug mentioned, you know, it's one of the top political moral issues of our time, you know, whether we assist people in dying or whether we let the process happen naturally. And finally, she talks about how the demon demonization of death is an unfortunate concept in our modern world. Monotheism, you know, religion, death becomes spooks that chase us through alleys and hospitals Mm -hmm. and it's it's enormously tarred and feathered as the leave taking in this life the human conception you know of these things that are to be feared when in reality we need to embrace them and see it as you said uh, no one gets out alive you know Mm -hmm. And, and and in death we're witness witness to our alter state of consciousness you know like when People are dying and they start to see loved ones. I mean, I I experienced that with my own mother and dying of terminal brain cancer. It's like Mm -hmm. they're not even in their body anymore. They're kind of um, in the ethereal realm and they're talking to people that have gone on and they're telling stories of things that that you didn't witness or Mm -hmm. they didn't witness, but that's coming from the other side. And so Mm -hmm. um, I just thought it was really great because it 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 gave the examples of how it's not to be feared but to be embraced mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. and accepted and in 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 that acceptance it becomes not so much of a scary thing i think you know i mean it's easy to speculate about mm-hmm. we're all alive <laughs> you know but but it's 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 really you know when you see it in art and in music and in these concepts that that kind of get pushed to the side, but I, I think there's some deep meaning there. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's a shame that people think that the time before they die is the only time that they can reflect upon their lives and think about their relationships and their regrets and what they could have done differently. That's something that you should be doing throughout your whole life Mm -hmm. as often as you can, not waiting until you're at death's door and try to, you know, make amends or make things right or get right with Mm -hmm. people and get your affairs in order. This is something that should be happening throughout your whole life, not just at Mm -hmm. the end. And also because if you're lucky, if you're really lucky, you will know when you will die. You know, most people mm-hmm. don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. Gurdjieff actually talks about that. There's um, a passage from one of his meetings called uh, The Last Hour of Life. And he talks about kind of living your life in such a way that every every hour you're kind of looking at it as this is my last hour of life. So how would you live that differently versus how, you know, you would live, you know, we normally live where it's just you're kind of uh, – 
caught up in the moment and kind of obsessed with whatever is happening around you. And, you know, he's not saying, like, go out and, and kind of scratch everything off your bucket list or anything like that. Like, it's not a matter of, like, well, I don't want to spend my last hour with this person. Like, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you kind of are, are in your life and you need to, to kind of take care of your responsibilities and, and kind of accept where you are at any given moment. But it's more about how you approach that. You know, how do you live that life? Are you just, um, you know, preoccupied with uh, with something, with what's going on around you? Are you thinking, I don't like this person very much, and here I am, my last hour of life, spending it with this person? Or are you kind of taking in everything that you need to take in, that you're, you're kind of, um, if, you, if you kind of look at it like wherever you are is where you need to be, um, you know, how, how can you get everything out of that moment that you need to be getting? to be learning those lessons mm-hmm. or whatever, whatever happens, uh, you know, to, to be the purpose for you being there. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I think that, I was still going to follow up on Gurdjieff because Carlos Castaneda, it's, um, mm. it is thought that he was greatly influenced by him and uh, he uses the theme of, of death very frequently in his books. For example, um, there's a quote here, journey to explain death is the only wise advisor that we have whenever you mm-hmm. feel as you always do that everything is going wrong and you're about to be annihilated turn to your death and ask if that is so your death will tell you that you're wrong that nothing really matters outside of such your death will tell you i haven't touched you yet so yeah <laughs> just for thought <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, most of us nowadays, we spend our lives uh, living our lives the way somebody else wants us to live it or uh, what we think are, based on what we think are the expectations of other people, we don't live our true life the way we want it. And that's how we come to the end of life to think about all these things that we have we could have been thinking all along mm-hmm. and changing our priorities, uh, changing the way we contact ourselves. So well, we've got actually a caller, a caller on the line right now that maybe we can uh, we can go to here. Um, so we have with us uh, Shane. Shane, can you hear us? I can hear you. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Hey, Shane. Hello. Hi, Shane. Hey. Um, so yeah, I. I just wanted to talk about a little bit about my um so the process that uh, I had gone to uh, gone through with uh with my grandparents. Um I was pretty closely involved in their process of dying and you know it was a it was a really remarkable experience on um on my part and you know it's kind of like a it's almost you know there's something um reverent about the, you know, helping somebody to with that process of dying, and um, you know, I think when a lot of family members are faced with um, you know a, a loved one dying, uh, I just want to talk about like that, how that, how strong that, um, you know, the the damage that the denial around that can do, mm-hmm. and you know how it can be really. Uh, I think great service to 
another person by you know really accepting and respecting uh, their death um, and or that process of dying. Um, you know, I know it through that it can really open the doors um, for you know some really like special moments that I think can help facilitate um, that uh, that person being able to kind of you know accept death themselves. Um, I know the last times that I visited uh, with uh, with each of my grandparents, I knew with each one, you know, when like that that would be the last visit. You know, you can you can tell, and you know, I think that there is a, a, an openness on on their part. I don't know if there's you know other other things involved, but you know, you can kind of uh, you can sense it and. Uh, I think if you are like in that mind frame where you are kind of like uh, accepting, you know, where they're at, um, that you know you can just that that opportunity to you know be able to tell them you know how much they meant to you and uh, or how much they mean to you and you know how much you love them and um, you know those those kinds of things that I think that relieves a big burden on their part because uh, it, it is I'm yeah. sure you know it is hard to um, to go through life and you know some people will hold on to you know so many um, anger issues and control issues that just makes the dying process can make the dying process you know really difficult and that's that's kind of that was kind of the case with my grandfather he was he he did die very much the same as he lived which is you know, very stubborn and Hold on to the very last <laughs> possible mm-hmm. moment, um, but um, yeah, it, it was uh, yeah. I, I just kind of wanted to share that uh, that experience. It was, um, cause it was yeah, it was a you know it was a remarkable time. To uh, I learned quite a bit, and uh, it can be a really special thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. It can be kind of a nice moment, and people think, oh wow, you're going to visit dead people, isn't that sad? Isn't that just terrible? And it, it really wasn't. I mean, you're sitting there, you're holding their hand, you're talking, you're connecting in a more natural way than you would just, you know, in normal conversation with people. Just two people sharing themselves, you know, you're talking about your life, uh, you're sharing stories, nobody cares about what they look like or that they're sick or mm-hmm. that they're in the bed and you know, what do you do for a living? How much money do you make? You're just, you know, talking with each other and being yourselves with people, and that can be a really beautiful thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I agree. There's, um, There was a, a pretty significant change that I remember seeing in my grandfather um, probably within, I guess, his last year. Uh, and, you know, you, you could see just this kind of, I, I guess, you know, releasing of some control, not all of it, but but some mm-hmm. of it. And you know, and that can be yeah, that that's a it's just interesting I guess that you know, death can kinda um help change a person a little bit too. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, help those uh with those that those bonding experiences that I think are really needed for for, for death. Yeah, I would agree. I think I think a lot of it, you know, it seems we kind of use this uh, term um, of letting go, 
And it seems like it is, you know, the process of dying is a certain amount of kind of letting go, releasing that, that ego that wants to control everything and be, be in control and mm-hmm. kind of like being faced with this, this moment of realizing that, that you aren't in control, you know, and that you probably haven't been your entire life. But, uh, you know, by visiting with these people who are dying and speaking with them, and you're probably working through a lot of issues and kind of assisting in that in some way. You know, you're, you're kind of like telling me, you know what, it's okay. Whatever happened over the course of, of our life, if there was disagreements or whatever, um, whatever that might have been, it's kind of like you're assisting them to let go. You're kind of helping them like, you know what, everything is fine. Everything is, is good. Um, we, I, I enjoyed our, our time together in this life. So it's kind of like it, it's reassuring them and letting them do that let go process. It's kind of like assisting in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who are dying, they're okay with it themselves, but a lot of their major worries come from how their families will cope with them dying and, you know, how will they get on without them. Um, there's one man that I spoke with, and he was like, Well, I think maybe we lost Tiff there. Yeah, I, I didn't hear anything, but I, I can hear you guys now. But I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna head out. But I, uh, yeah, great mm-hmm. show topic. I'm, I'm glad. Uh, Good. Well, thanks a lot thanks for sharing you. your experience, uh, Shane. That was yeah, great. Thank you for calling. Thank you, Shane. Beautiful. Bye, Shane. Hey. Can you yeah. hear us now? Yeah, we can hear you now. What, what were you saying, Tim? Yeah, I was holding his hand and I was talking to him, and his wife was there too, and you know. Saying you know, what what's going on? What are you worried about? I can tell that you're in a lot of distress right now. And he was worried about his wife, and you know, would she be okay, money wise? And you know, mm-hmm. would you be able to take care of the house? And you know, just little everyday things. And she reassured him, you know, you know, you left you left me money. You know, I'm okay. I can I can take care of myself. You know, the kids are here and they'll help me. It's okay for you to go. And mm-hmm. I guess he just really needed to hear that she would be okay before he allowed yeah. himself to die. Yeah. There's also the uh, the tradition of visiting somebody's grave after they've died. And that's more of a process, I think. Well, obviously, it's more of a process for the living. But uh, I think in a lot of cases, you know, people who are left behind have a lot of, of stuff, like issues and things that they need to kind of get out. Um, so although it's not maybe the same thing as visiting somebody by their bedside when they're in the process of dying, I think that, you know, visiting somebody's grave and, you know, you know, some people will actually have conversations as if the person is there or, or, you know, maybe just in their heads or something like that. But, uh, you know, it's a way of kind of like working through, um, things that were sort of unresolved and who knows, I mean, maybe it does have kind of an effect on letting, uh, letting people actually transition to the other side. You know, if there are kind of things that are hanging over that weren't resolved, it might be a process that uh, that that can lead to resolution. Yeah, and and I don't I don't know if you any of you have that grandparent that that talks to their their significant other even though they've been dead for years, mm-hmm. and uh, the conversation, you know. Um, who are you talking to, Grandpa? Oh, I'm talking to Grandma. She, you know, oh, well, isn't she dead? You know, I remember mm-hmm. this as a kid. Well, well, that doesn't mean I still can't talk to her. I mean, I talked to her my whole life. You mm-hmm. know, I'm going to talk to her when I'm dead too. Why she's, you know, it's not this. 
so cut and dry, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. we we take the dignity out of it, you know, and in doing that, we take the you know the dignity out of living too, you know, that they mm-hmm. that they will live on and and they're a teacher, you know, really, and to not fear it. It's interesting how people who are less fearful, so to speak, also, like, know, they take it for granted. Like, they, it is in their knowledge that, you know, death is not the end, you know, it goes on, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it was interesting. I think there was an article out, like, no matter what culture people come from, no matter where they live in the world, like if they have these near-death experience, nearly all of them reported seeing like these tunnel with this bright white light, and then sometimes there's this gate that they can pass through or not pass through. Usually they mm-hmm. don't pass through, else we wouldn't know the story of how they <laughs> had this near-death experience. But yeah. uh, there's somebody there that tells them, no, you can't go past this gate, you need to go back. But mm-hmm. it's just the that they all experienced the same thing no matter where they were from or what they believed. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, there was a, about uh, how people experience death as a positive thing. Uh, there was a book I read. Uh, it was called Life Before Life. And this uh, woman, she was uh, putting a volunteer, volunteer subjects under hypnosis. Mm. And she will ask them particular questions uh, about pre-birth curing and after the birth experience. Mm. And the interesting thing was that they, some of them, they will go way back to remember how they died and then coming back into life. And they all reported that uh, it was uh, much more pleasant, the death experience, than the birth experience. Because they said that coming back, like being inside that tiny uh, body that is not a, is not independent, can't do anything, and they said they felt confined, cold, alone, disconnected in their new body. Mm-hmm. But going back, like after death, he was like, "Hey, I'm going back home again." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, a lot of people describe that death and the light as just an overwhelming feeling of love. It's like the best feeling they ever had in their life, and they want to go back to it, but they know it's not their time. But they take that feeling with them, and it kind of influences their life. I think there was a story about this lady who had a near-death experience, and she saw the light and all that, and she came back. And she all of a sudden had this knowledge of quantum physics, and she huh. went on to become a physicist. No <laughs> she kidding. Had a download on the other side. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. On that note, I wanted to ask you, um, all of you, your opinion about the following. It's from a book called The Wisdom of Near Death Experiences, written by Penny Sartori. And she says that two lesser-known after-effects of near-death experience reported by many researchers are that some people develop a new sensitivity to electricity or have problems mm. with their wrist watches. Sometimes they mm-hmm. don't even connect the fact that their watch can't keep time or stop altogether with what mm. they've been through. And, yeah, she quotes, like, a nurse who 
She says that one woman told me that she blows light bulbs regularly when switching them on so much so that this has become a standing joke in her family. Huh. I've also been known um, thrown backwards and right across the room several times when using or touching electrical appliances. Mm-hmm. Um, disturbing in a different way were accounts from people who develop psychic tendencies after having a near-death experience. And one woman told her that she could foresee bad things that were going to happen. Mm-hmm. Wow. Electrical anomalies and psychic powers. Wow. So, so. <laughs> I don't have any explanation for that, but (laughs) yeah. I definitely think it's possible. Yeah. Well, there's a book uh, by Kenneth Ring, who wrote a lot about near-death experiences, and he uh, wrote many books about them. Uh, He did a lot of research on the subject. And uh, he wrote a book, it's very interesting, it's called The Omega Project. Hmm. But what he found is that all the elements, um, uh, like uh, the one you're talking about, being like um, people after near-death experiences being sensitive to electricity and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, he also uh, found them in people who were uh, abducted. Hmm. So, and he found, he did a research, that's what this book is about, the Omega Project, and he found that a lot of the personality characteristics of people who have near-death experiences and alien abductions are similar. So, he never came like 20, yes, he never came to any conclusion like what happened, I mean, obviously, uh, an alien abduction is a very scary experience for most people and very traumatic. Near-death experiences are, are something like very uh, life-changing uh, for the better and very uh, happy experience, joyful experience. Mm. But yeah, he he saw this as an interesting point. Yeah. What it like has to do with... Physical leftovers of being taken to another realm or... Yeah. Oh, no. That's just what I was going to say, too. Yes. That's what it sounds like. Like, where we are, it's kind of like there's a certain level of electricity, if I may call it that. Mm -hmm. And then when we go, we're moved into something else that is, like, more charged. Mm -hmm. Maybe when Mm -hmm. we come back, there is some residue of that that affects uh, our life in this world. Yeah. Yeah, these are all the kinds of things that are extremely difficult to explain uh, from a materialist perspective. You know, it's like all all these uh, materialists who kind of look at at these sorts of phenomena and try and find physical explanations for them. It's like you just you just come up. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what could be going on here. We need to move on from the materialistic world. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, it's okay not to know. Yeah, it's exciting. It's like, oh wow, there's so much more to learn yet. Yeah, it's really hard to understand the people who think that, oh, that that's all there is to it, and this is all I know, and that's enough. You know. Mm. I think it comes back to that whole ego control consciousness. You know, don't think about it, don't talk about it. It's morbid. It's you know, yeah, something Mm -hmm. to be feared instead of 
you know, like Doug had said about the last hour of your life based on Gurdjieff, like if you live each moment being in awe of what, what you're experiencing, maybe there's not that fear that comes. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it comes back to that, you know, this 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 idea that, that the materialist is actually very uncomfortable with the idea mm-hmm. that they're not in complete control. And that physical mm-hmm. reality is not all that there is, but there's something more um going on there. It's uh you know, there's there's kind of like different types of people, people who kind of accept that um, you know, that that everything that they see is not all that there is, and people who are very uncomfortable with that, with that concept, with that idea. Mm-hmm. Well, there was something that we brought up in our our pre-show call, something about the the weight of the soul. Mm. Does somebody have some information on that? Um, yeah. I think it was Jonathan who was going to look into that. Um, but it, it, I know a little bit about it. Like, apparently they have done experiments where they weigh the person before they die and then weigh them afterwards and have found a difference of 28 grams, I think it is. And the, mm. there's some speculation that the that the soul actually weighs 28 grams and once the soul leaves the body, you, you can see that uh, that difference in weight. I, I don't know how much there is to that. I, I, haven't, I haven't really looked into it that much. Well, certainly I know it's because there was a movie about it, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, there was a movie called 28 Grams, but I never actually saw it. <laughs> Yes, I do. That's how I know about this. But yeah, I haven't read about it more more into it either. Yeah. Any speculations, guys? I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that the soul can have any weight at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I think there are some confounding factors there. I mean, come mm. on. <laughs> I, don't yeah. I don't know. Maybe, but at the same uh, can time. Can you do an experiment? Yeah, I mean, you know, you you could speculate. I mean, rather than, you know, there's there's this idea that it isn't that there's a difference between physicality and non-physicality, but it's kind of levels of physicality and that, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe the the soul does have some material aspect to it, but it's it's so Mm -hmm. fine that we can't quite perceive it or experience it. Um, in any kind of mm-hmm. physical way, that we're kind of surrounded by this this other level of physical matter that is so fine that it's kind of beyond our perception. You, you know, I might be completely out in left field here, but yeah. yeah. I think that way. I think it will be more in the lines like how soul or consciousness interacts with your genes and thus your body. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but maybe our consciousness is uh, also material. The way Doug is talking about, like, uh, you know, if you take it like uh, physics and the tiny elements that exist, everything is made of something. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's pretty fascinating, nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, what well, do you have? That when oh. you can. I was Go just ahead, going to say the idea, um, you know, maybe like Tiffany experienced in hospice or I know I experienced it when, when my mother died, that the changing where it's almost like you think you see the spirit no longer in the body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like the person that you love is there and um, 
in, in a physical shell, so to speak, but that their spirit has moved on. That make, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You know, I mean, Kubler-Ross talked about that just a little bit in her work on death and dying, about how it's, it speaks so much to how we view death, that when people die and they put makeup on them and mm-hmm. they dress them up and you go to mm-hmm. this open casket and, you know, it's like um, people don't want to see the gruesome aspects of it. So mm-hmm. we kind mm-hmm. of treat dead like we treat the living in, in that sense, you know? Mm-hmm. That's very interesting because uh, there's so much uh, um, the the subject of uh, zombies is now very popular. People mm-hmm. are dressing mm-hmm. up like zombies. Mm-hmm. This is like dressing up like dead, which is like yeah. uh, mm-hmm. ugly and disgusting. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really, we live in a very weird paradox. Yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah, almost it's... like in people's unconscious and then they're acting it out, mm-hmm. but then there's this whole fear of it and non-acceptance. So yeah. exactly. Yeah. We can't send that. the dead people to look like dead, but if somebody's mm-hmm. alive and is dressed up like dead, oh, we can live with that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the whole that. zombie meme <laughs> is kind of a strange thing because it's really kind of like dwelling on the more gruesome aspects of death. You know, it's the, the mm-hmm. rotting corpse, like the the uh, kind of lifeless, rotting corpse that has been reanimated and it goes around and it tries to kill others too and turn you into a zombie. You know, that, you know, if you're bitten by a zombie, then you become a zombie. It's kind of this like picture of death again, that, that is kind of, um, that death is gruesome and, and, and terrible and it's something you want to avoid at all costs. And, you know, all the zombie movies and everything are people who are, you know, desperately trying to escape this, this gruesome aspect of death and death is a terrible thing. Um, and it, there's really no room in that whole meme for for uh, a more positive view of dying, and that it is kind of a, a natural process and something that we all have to go through. It's this terrifying thing that we have to run from, and you know, arm yourself with weapons and do absolutely everything you can <laughs> to to uh, get rid of this menace and, and and escape and find safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more like a material, a materialist view of death. Like they're focusing on the dead body and the the physical aspects of it. I mean, there is a physical aspect to dying, but that's not all there is. I mean, they completely shun like the the more spiritual parts mm-hmm. of the whole dying process, and they focus on what happens to the body after it's dead. Which is, I mean, who cares really? Like, yeah. I still don't understand like people who are squeamish about being cremated or buried. You're not there anymore. It's just your body. (laughs) It's just a shell. You're done with it. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. So we do have a pet health segment from Zoya that we can uh, go to. Does anybody else have any, um, anything to add? Anything that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah. Okay. Mm. Okay, so why don't we go to uh, Zoya's pet health segment, and she will similarly be talking about death. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I'm going to talk about the topic of death. Today, more and more pet owners and professionals are willing to talk openly about sensitive issues 
that have to do with the departure of a beloved furry member of the family talk about how difficult it is and about the depth of grief that is no different in intensity of grieving over a human loved one. Another important topic is that sometimes there is no choice and the most compassionate choice one could do for the pet is to lessen their suffering by ending their life. The accepted notion is that pets have no perception of death in the way we humans do. The general consensus is that they most probably experience death in the way children do. They feel the loss but don't understand the finality of it. But we do. And even if we probably do a fair share of anthropomorphization, there is nothing wrong with wanting to make the last moments as peaceful and loving as possible. And afterwards, nothing wrong with grieving their departure. Since it is quite possible that grief is as much about familiarity as it is about love or affection anyway, it just adds weight to the argument that we need to take pet bereavement more seriously. If so, all the stages of grieving and all the ways of dealing with it can apply to losing a pet too. Write about it, talk about it, share pictures, compose songs. This wonderful creature was a part of your life for such a long time and filled your life with so much joy and contentment. I'm sure this kind of love doesn't go wasted and maybe it's a silly belief, but pets or others that loved us probably never truly believe us. They're always in our hearts. Now, I would like to talk a bit about the topic of euthanasia. This is considered to be one of the most difficult tasks that veterinarians have to do. But in many cases there is no way around it, and sometimes it is the most kind and loving thing to do for an animal in pain. As a student, I often see people coming with their very sick pets again and again, spending a lot of money and time, trying to squeeze those extra months or days, not wanting to let go, or thinking that it is their responsibility to provide their pet with all the possible time they have left on this planet. And while it is truly commendable, especially when there are so many people who get rid of their pets without a problem or want to put them down to sleep because they no longer serve the purpose, uh, for example, some breeders do it a lot here. We must remember that as guardians of our pets, we must try and provide them with the same care nature would. And one of the things that nature does is to allow things to wither if it is their time. It is a natural process, and since our furry friends can't speak, we have to make the decision for them. Veterinarians have all kinds of classifications for euthanasia. There is a convenience euthanasia, when a client is unwilling to keep the pet anymore. In such cases, con uh, conscientious uh, veterinarians will try to find another home for a pet. Uh, speaking of non-judgment, apparently there are more and more cases in the U.S. where people ask to euthanize their pets because they have no money to take care of them. So although I do have strong feeling about certain breeders uh, who see animals as money-making meat uh, bags, I understand that some people really have no choice, and so, if possible, better help the animal find another home. Another types of euthanasia are non-medical euthanasia that describes a euthanasia request that is unrelated to patient patient's uh, medical stability, such as behavior issues, aggression, improper elimination, family lifestyle or emotional changes that impact the patient's quality of life. 
uh, they can be non-imminent medical euthanasia that describes situations that may be manageable or curable under different circumstances. These patients will suffer if they do not receive treatment, but the necessary conditions and resources are not available. And there is the medical euthanasia, the most common, that describes the euthanasia uh, chosen because the client and the veterinarian deem the patient's quality of life unsustainable. As you can see, there are various situations and reasons. And it's important to understand that every person and every pet has their unique situation. If you care about your animal, then you can make the right choice while keeping in mind that lessening their suffering is much more compassionate and merciful than just having them around for a few more days or months. But it doesn't mean that you can make their departure as comfortable and as stress-free as possible. Euthanasia should be preferably performed at home unless it's an emergency or for some reason members of the family are against it. Another vital element is not breaking the human-animal bond. If you find yourself in such situation, ask your veterinarian to allow you to keep holding your pet through the entire procedure. Sure, animals can resist, but then that's what sedation is there for. Both you and your pet should be stress-free as possible during that time. Uh, please don't be alarmed by various catheters and other medical equipment. That's another reason to do it at home, something that can make the process a bit more comfortable. Another thing to consider, especially if your pet is still in the condition of moving around by itself, is that some pets prefer to die alone. And they, uh, like, for example, you're probably familiar with some cases that uh, cats, uh, old cats leave their houses and disappear and it's possible that they probably just went uh, to find a place and die and so just be sensitive to the behavior and choices of your pet too if they are unable to move and uh, you see that they want the human touch your touch then don't break the human animal bond but if they want to leave don't stop them Another thing to remember that veterinarians understand or should understand that in such situations a person uh, or you or other person in such situation can be very distraught. And good veterinarians are willing to give you any time you need and to continue being kind and sensitive to your needs. It is indeed true that losing a pet is like losing a family member and it isn't an easy day at all. Well, this is it for this segment. Hopefully it was helpful, and have a good day. Okay. Thanks for that, Zoya. I thought that was very informative. I find it very interesting mm -hmm. that the idea of uh, euthanizing a pet in, in situations where it's the most humane thing to do is much more accepted than the idea of euthanizing a human when they are suffering and mm -hmm. uh yeah, anyway, that's just something mm -hmm. I, I thought of. Yeah. Anyway. That is very true. Uh, yeah. We had to recently euthanize our 16-year-old dog because she mm. was so old and ill. And it, what she said about it, it's like losing a family member. It really is. You, you yeah. don't realize it until you're in the moment of it and, and you grieve for them. And, and what was interesting was uh, our dog was so old, we thought maybe she would die on her own, but the vet said that she's going to continue to live mm. for you. Mm. You know, uh, so it's the 
the the best thing to do, you know, because she was in that stage where she couldn't walk around and whatnot. So I thought that was, and it was hard. Yeah. She got a chocolate chocolate bar before she died. <laughs> <laughs> the forbidden food. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I guess that bit about wraps it up for our show this week. Thanks everybody for joining us, and uh, we're sorry that Jonathan couldn't uh, couldn't join us, but he will be uh, with us next week. So uh, we'll be back next week with uh, another topic to cover on health and wellness. Uh, that's Friday at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, be sure to tune into the other Sot Talk Radio programs. Uh, tomorrow we've got uh, the Truth Perspective at uh, two o'clock Eastern, and on Sunday there is Behind the Headlines, uh, also at 2 p.m. Eastern time. So thanks, everybody, for joining us, and uh, join us again soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.